With modern skyscrapers and savvy business people scurrying all about, Frankfurt is Germany's financial center. It's also become a great weekend getaway with interesting stories to share. The gentleman who invented the sausage actually came from Frankfurt before industrial mincing. Making such heavily minced meat was incredibly refined craftsmanship. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, guides from Germany tell us why Frankfurt is hot. Go beneath the surface in the pastoral landscapes of Britain and you'll find a lot more than meets the eye. Author Robert McFarlane investigates two unnerving places where nature's overgrowth casts a shadow over a sinister past. We have such an idea of landscapes often as you know peaceful or tranquil or pastoral or green, and almost none of them are. There's very rarely an innocent landscape, so I wanted to dig down into the bones. And we'll look at where you want to go as soon as it's safe to head out again. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. The greenery that overgrows the countryside can hide unquiet stories where the past and the present haunt each other. That's what Robert McFarlane has found in his journeys into some of the unsettled landscapes of Britain. He explains in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we'll open the phones at 877-333-7425 as we continue checking in with listeners like you on where your hopes are set for traveling once it's safe to do so again. Let's start the hour in one of Germany's power cities, Frankfurt, in an interview we recorded just before the global pandemic lockdowns. Typically, Berlin, Munich, and Bavaria steal the show, but the German city of Frankfurt shines on its own as a modern city that also offers a great look at today's Germany. Devastated in World War II bombings and rebuilt with a new design, today it's a gleaming city of towering skyscrapers and powerful banks straddling the Main River. And the Main River is a fine riverside park lined with museums and taverns that are popular for their apple wine. To learn more, we're joined in our studio by two German guides, Carolina Marburger and Barbara Shipkowski. Barbara and Carolina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Carolina, when people think Frankfurt in Germany, what do they think? What's the reputation of Frankfurt? Uh, The reputation is of, I think in English it's referred to as Frankfurt, but we more often call it Manhattan. Main being the river that runs through it, and Manhattan a reference to Manhattan, so skyscrapers, banks, and all that, which, however, implies a certain lack of soul, and therefore a lot of Germans like, well, Frankfurt. So it seems to be just bank, money, trade. However, if you actually get to know it, Compared to love at first sight, Frankfurt is a love at second sight because it, is, it has a lot of local beauty. It has a lot of local charm, but it's something you need to discover. Yeah, and it does have a, a shiny skyline. It's, it's it a is. city of skyscrapers. It's unique in Europe for I that. think Meinhatten is a good name because in Germany there's nothing so close to no. New York as Frankfurt. And it's a beautiful skyline. They take care of how it is assembled. So it, even though it keeps growing, it's nicely assembled. There's a pedestrian bridge across the Main River. The Iron Bridge. The Iron the Bridge. Iron and when you stand on the Iron Bridge, you've got these beautiful parks on both sides of the Main River, mm-hmm. and then you've got this skyline. And it yes. just feels like a, kind of a German New York. 
It's actually the recommendation for summer night is to go to the other side of the Mine River and sit down on the green, get maybe a fish dinner and an apple boy and then oh. marvel at that skyline. I, you know, most Americans, they go to Europe to see old stuff. I love to see modern skylines also. I like modern architecture. London mm-hmm. is great for that. Yes. And in Germany, you wouldn't find that in Munich, that's for sure. Never. You'll find it in Frankfurt. And the, the big skyscraper that's open for the tourist, as I understand, is the Mine Tower named after the river, and it's 54 floors tall, 650 feet up there, and the terrace on top is just an amazing view at the city. Now, Barbara, when we're thinking about Frankfurt, it also has, obviously, a lot of history, and I I know there was a big struggle in the 19th century when Germany was being united. There was a bunch Mm -hmm. of small states that spoke German, Mm -hmm. and there was Prussia, and there was Bavaria, and those were sort of the leading contenders to be the force behind which Germany was united. But apart from Prussia and Bavaria, you had a bunch of little states that Mm -hmm. looked to Frankfurt. Talk about Frankfurt in 1848 and and how that was part of this German unification. Well, you have in Frankfurt the famous Paulskirche. It used to be an actual Protestant church. Mm -hmm. And if somebody gets the German Medal of Honor, Angela Merkel is going to give that to that person in that church. It goes back to that assembly in 1848, the first National Assembly of Democrats were getting together Mm -hmm. and saying, this is what we want. We don't want the monarchy. Let's be a democratic country. So it was sort of the home of the German uh, feeling for uh, democracy rather than autocracy. Yeah. You mentioned Paul's Church. I I think the English word Mm -hmm. would be Paul's Church. Mm -hmm. And that's a museum for that today, essentially. You can go and see paintings and etchings Mm -hmm. from that period. Our German tour guides to Frankfurt on Travel with Rick Steves are Barbara Schakowsky and Carolina Marburger. A listener named Barbara in Arlington, Virginia, emails us at radio at ricksteves.com on what she recommends about Frankfurt. And Barbara writes, Frankfurt is a perfect city to visit. One can easily walk around or catch the U-Bahn. That would be the local subway. There are many historic sites in Frankfurt. Paul's Church, the site of the first German representative government, Goethe's house, the cathedral where the Holy Roman Emperor was crowned, and the old bridge, the site of the fairy tale Billy Goat's Gruff. An old town was recently reconstructed to show what Frankfurt looked like before the bombings of World War II. One can sit along the Main River and watch the boats go by. The city has a vast array of international foods to try, as Frankfurt has a very diverse population. Wow, Barbara summed it up quite well there, didn't she? She did. So, Carolina, when, when we think about Frankfurt, we think about a diverse population and lots of trade. Through the centuries, it's been a trade center. My experience with Frankfurt is going to trade shows. Yes, it has been uh, since the Middle Ages. Part of it, of course, being on the Rhine. And so the biggest global book fair is in Frankfurt. And also the sort of the local color is of a burger city. So burger being probably in English more like a citizen's city. So a lot of foundations, which for Americans is more common, right? Charity by citizens mm-hmm. and, and public figures. And that is something that makes part of the pattern of Frankfurt, so that it's so a kind of a citizen's city. Is burger, does that mean a businessman or a merchant? A or townsman, a s- merchant, a slash bourgeois. And someone that is wealthy to a certain amount and very involved in city affairs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Frankfurt. And when we were going to Frankfurt, we've got to remember it was a very strategic city in World War II. And in Germany, if you were a strategic city, you were targeted by the bombings. And there was just horrible bombing in Frankfurt. I think Frankfurt's done a very good job of rebuilding. Now, all of the leading German cities in the late 1940s had to rebuild. 
and they had to decide, are you going to rebuild in your medieval higgly-piggly street plan, or are you going to say, okay, enough of this medieval nonsense, we're going to be like New York, and we're going to have a grid plan of streets and a big skyscraper downtown. Mm-hmm. Frankfurt decided to go with the, what was called the Manhattan plan, whereas Munich went with the medieval plan. But Frankfurt did keep its old medieval quarter. The What is it called, the Romerberg? There is the Römerberg, and just newly finished the old new town. The old new town. What mm. is that? Or new old town? The new, it called? The new <laughs> old town. <laughs> it's confusing. So, but when you go there, you feel like you're in the middle of a medieval town, and, right. and it's a beautiful, charming part. Uh, Barbara, tell us more about the new old town or the old new town. I found it so great for generations following us to give them an opportunity to see how the area really looked like at one point. Yeah. Even though behind the facade it's new. For one house, for example, they kept the red color, and it used to be a butcher's house, and they were selling um, sausages. Now what's kind of gross is the color red with the blood of the oxen. And they sell sausages, and I can't help but think, well, Frankfurter. Mm -hmm. So Frankfurt is the city. A Frankfurter is somebody who lives there, but we also have the Frankfurter sausage. Is Is the sausage from Frankfurt, is that what that is? People know the Vienna sausage, the Wiener, Wiener. and people know the Frankfurter. So a Viennese is a Wiener. A a Wiener, we would call it. You would call it a Wiener, Wiener. and a Frankfurter, a person who lives in Frankfurt, is a a Frankfurter, a Frankfurter. And is there a sausage for the Frankfurter? And there is for both a sausage that's named, it's actually the same sausage, and the gentleman who invented the sausage actually came from Frankfurt, so the um, Viennese call them actually Frankfurters, oh, and the, and the so Frankfurters the... call them Wiener. It's a trademark <laughs> that is protected, and hence only certain Frankfurters are actually Frankfurters. And the Frankfurter, which today, it's basically a hot dog sausage, right? Yeah. You would think, like, that's not a special sausage, but it is the imperial sausage because back in the day, you can maybe imagine that before industrial mincing, Hmm. Making such heavily minced meat was incredibly refined craftsmanship. Yes. And so it was that, that sausage that ended up in the oxen's kitchens that you just mentioned, which were put on the Rimmerberg for the coronation celebrations in the Middle Ages in Frankfurt. Heavily minced meat and sausages were the re- most refined sausage you would find, and that's the Frankfurters. So oddly, the, the simplest and maybe not the most amazing sausage today has this imperial background. It's really just a fancy weenie. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> so, But I do want to talk about the marketplace because there's a beautiful marketplace, sort of a traditional old-fashioned marketplace in the old center of Frankfurt. Can you talk about that uh, market? I think you refer to the Kleine Markthalle, which is the small market hall. Exactly. And uh, there is a lot of beautiful local markets around town, which I always recommend for you to find on a weekdays when they happen. However, that Kleine Markthalle has, for example, Rindswurst, which is beef sausage, which has something to do with actually the fact that Frankfurt, together with Berlin, had the strongest Jewish community. Okay. And so beef is something that the Jewish community could eat. So the beef sausage is famous for that. Mm-hmm. But it's indeed a very local thing where people go to have lunch. And you might even find grisos, which is the local way to say green sauce, which is a sort of a mix of sour cream with seven herbs. And they usually have it with potatoes and boiled eggs. And, of course, the local drink is the Appelvoi. Appelvoi. Or Apfelwein and apple wine. And I have to warn everyone because that puts up a very different expectations from what it actually is. Because people, oh, cider. Yes, it belongs to the family. But if you imagine something like French cider, you will be deadly underwhelmed. So don't expect that. Think of something very different. It's a sour, bitter, alcoholic beverage 
that has a similar alcohol level to beer. Uh-huh. And very often it's mixed with sparkling water. That's a Sauergespritzter. And it, it is very refreshing, but you have to think it's a sour bitter thing that goes out to very old, very ancient apple uh, families. Mm-hmm. And so they are old, like sour. And therefore it's a re- very refreshing drink served in bembels, which are old gray blue patterned kind of bottles mm-hmm. or a glass that is sort of thatched because it was held when you had possibly greasy fingers. Oh, so a thatched glass, yeah, a little so woven glass. Yeah, glass, exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Frankfurt with two German guides, Barbara Schakowsky and Carolina Marburg. And Carolina, we were talking about this apple wine. There's a famous place across the river where people go in the evening, sort of a traditional coziness, a conviviality with lots of... Uh, like the equivalent of beer gardens or wine gardens. The most famous spot for this is Sachsenhausen. That's where the, the Appelweikneipen, you find most of them. Fichtegrenzi is my personal favorite. It's very simple, wooden paneled uh, places where you get all the food that you would like to have if you want to have really local food. And you will find locals. And the word you said is kneipen. That's like a kneipen would it's be a pub, a, basically, a pub. Okay, but you get good. food there. And then, Barbara, if you want to stay downtown and enjoy the energy, what do you recommend? Well, the bankers are going actually to the Fressgasse. Fressgasse. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, that means that you just eat yourself silly. <laughs> Well, really, it's like it's like just <laughs> well, pig you, out street. Yeah, you you go from one place to the other, and um, yeah, have little little nibblings here and there, and um, yeah, eat yourself silly. It's my heaven, by the way. So there's an elegant place, the Opera House, and then right next to that stretches the pig out street. Yes, and all the bankers in their in their suits are there, and they're just mm-hmm. eating and drinking like crazy. Yep, and then they go back to work. And then they go back to work. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying Frankfurt with Barbara Shikovsky and Carolina Marburger. Dankeschön. Sehr gerne. Herzlichen Dank. Dankeschön. We'll check in on your travel plans right after Robert McFarlane tells us about two of the ghost ways he's gotten to know in Britain. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. You could call them haunted landscapes. Author Robert McFarlane has been exploring the stories that the overgrowth is trying to cover over along the hollowways of Dorset near the south coast of England and at Orford Ness, a former secret weapons test site on the coast of Suffolk that's been turned into a nature reserve. Robert's joined forces with author Dan Richards and illustrator Stanley Donwood to publish a pair of prose poems in a powerful little book called Ghostways, Two Journeys in Unquiet Places. Robert joins us from his home in Cambridge, England, where he teaches literature at Emmanuel College. Hey, thanks, Rick. Ghostways, it's actually two books in one. It talks about two places, nests and Holloway. What is a ghostway, and what is it about landscapes that you find so haunting? Ghostway, the word comes from a Dutch phrase, spookwegen, and those were the paths that led to cemeteries, the paths that led to burial places along which the coffins would be carried. So I chose this title to summon up, as it were, to conjure back the ghosts of these two unsettled landscapes that I write about with my co-author, Stanley Donwood, the great artist uh, known for his work as Radiohead's artist, and Dan Richards, who, who co-wrote Holloway, one of the books with me. We have such an idea of landscapes often as you know peaceful or tranquil or pastoral or green, and almost none of them are. There's very rarely an innocent landscape, so I wanted to dig down into the bones. Dig down into the bones. That sounds evocative right there. These are two real places, but mm-hmm. you're sort of um, highlighting an idea that that landscapes can be unquiet places. I think of landscapes as quiet places upon <laughs> which all the unquietness sits. 
<laughs> but you can sweep all of that away and find that there is essential unrest in the landscapes. Talk a bit about that. Well, I'll give, I'll give you another phrase for this wonderful Irish uh, phrase, which translates as, as thin places. Um, thin places yeah. are places where the veil between one world and another is is at its flimsiest, where the past and the present haunt one another. Uh, and these two places, I think, uh, concentrate that. So one of them, Holloway, is a sunken path in Dorset in southern England. And it's a path that's been in place for at least a thousand years. And the travel that has gone on on it, the footfall, the wheel ruts, the rain that has run down it, have gradually harrowed it down into the landscape. So some of these holloways, hollow ways, um, holveg in Anglo-Saxon Old English, are 12, 15, 20 feet below the, the fields. They're like ravines. And they carry huh. so much history in them, as you can imagine, a path made by so many people yes. over so many years is a haunted place. I've been in enchanting, I call them Tolkien-esque places yeah. in England and South Wales and Dartmoor and, and in Cornwall and so on, where you have these hedges. To me, mm -hmm. hedges are enchanting mm. and they're, they're built up that create a hollow way. Yep. And then you've got the canopy of trees over that and you bring your mirrors in on your car because it's so narrow, it's going to be scraping on both sides. Right. And then you go down this hollow way. And then if you do that for centuries, it digs it deeper and deeper. And England has that that misty past that you dig down. You, they say you, you scratch Gloucestershire and you find ancient Rome, you know. You scratch anywhere in England, you find uh, this haunted past. So you find certain places that are gateways to that wonder. That's right. Gateways is a wonderful way of putting it, a portal. And I think these hollowways carry history in a particularly yeah. folded uh, and echoing way. And th these particular hollowways, the ones in southern Dorset, they have a fascinating history of sort of fugitives and persecutors. So during the Catholic recusancy in the 16th century, this is where Catholic priests who were being persecuted for their faith would take refuge. Uh, they would hide in these sunken lanes. They would even take mass uh, mm -hmm. in, in the fields, in the hedges. So this is a place where people in danger have, have hidden. I was just staying in a hotel in uh, Stone the Wold, and it had a priest hall, I think it's uh, called. Yeah. And the priest would go in there, and then there was an underground tunnel that led him away so he could escape when Catholic priests were being persecuted and had their lives endangered. That's a brilliant metaphor for these. This is a landscape priest hole, really. That's yes. what the, the Holloway was, a natural feature that offered shelter. Robert McFarland's telling us about his journeys to two of Britain's most mysterious landscapes, the sunken Holloways of Dorset and the former military site at Orford Ness. They're featured in the book he's co-authored called Ghostways. He'll be back with us on a future edition of the show to tell us about his groundbreaking book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Besides his many titles on landscapes and memory, Robert also explores the magic of nature, language, and childhood in The Lost Spells and The Lost Words. Robert posts to Twitter at Rob G. McFarlane, and that's spelled M-A-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E. You talked about thin places, and then we talk about this actual history, priest mm. holes and so on. And I want to get more into the history because I love history, but mm. I'm also fascinated by something that's not historic. There's something that's kind of woo-woo and spiritual and apparitions and hauntedness and so on. And that's these thin places from a Christian point of view or a religious point of view, a thin place is where you feel close to God, even if you're not inclined to be religious. Mm. You go to Iona 
off mm. the coast of Scotland, you feel close to God. I mean, it's weird. You go to Assisi in uh, Italy, and it's a thin place. All over in my travels, whether it's in Christendom or Islam or, or Hindustan, you've got thin places. Does that factor in with you and, and your exploration of ghost ways? It does. And, and Iona, the, in a Hebridean island that you know, that's where thin places was recoined as a, as a modern phrase, as a modern concept by the founder of the Iona community. So you're absolutely right. You're right on the note. So he was but... taking something broader than one particular faith and uh, kind of embracing it for his experience. He was. He was. And a very old concept, I think, one that yeah. many people would have felt, right? And I'm sure many of your listeners will know that feeling of a landscape. Oh, you go to that. the top of the tour in Glastonbury? Oh. You're in a yeah. thin place. You sit there and you think, oh my goodness, this is more than Joseph of Arimathea with the Holy Grail. This goes back further than that. Stonehenge and, yep. and these mystical carvings into the mountains. And you gain an appreciation. People were searching and struggling and you can kind of go with the current and there's certain places that lend themselves to exploring and, and reaching for the sky and, and reaching deep within thin places. Yep. Well, Holloway is one of those, and it, that one had particular echoes for me because um, mm -hmm. it's also the site of a, of a very well-known British novel called Rogue Mail about another person who takes refuge in it. And then I traveled there with a friend of mine, the writer Roger Deakin, great books mm -hmm. about swimming through Britain and a book called Wildwood about trees. And we, we traveled there, we, we walked the Holloway, we camped in the Holloway. And you camped in the Holloway? Isn't that asking for trouble? Uh, what ghost trouble you mean ghost trouble yes yeah. ghost trouble well we we got some, i got some ghost trouble when we went back um, <laughs> there was no 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 two ways about that cuz um, all over england in these thin places i think you can hear the voices of long dead ancient roman soldiers uh, they tramp they, they tramp, tramp. Yeah. The, the the clink of the armor buckles uh, i've heard that in italy too in the mithraeums the underground worshipful places that many of the legionaries worship mithras the god of, of the underground that's um, no coincidence no. i mean it, there's really something there <laughs> you're not a nutcase this is real yeah well it's history leaving its traces and and, yeah. and that echoes in the mind and one doesn't need to be superstitious to believe that um and certain places are more heavily marked than others and those are the ghostways, but the history is not always a good history. You know, the, the, the right. Holloways are places of persecution and flight and death. You know, Robert, this is a little bit maybe silly, but as tourists, we always go to the ghost tours and, you know, these kind of things hmm. in, in York and in Edinburgh. Certain towns lend themselves to that more than others. Is that just modern tourism? Or yeah, I think it is. There's just more history there. I think that's right. That's a density of history which re-expresses itself as a kind of, um, that is woo-woo to me. So you've um, had drunk people in pubs in York that hear things rattling upstairs. Yeah, yeah, that, that I'm not interested in. Um, <laughs> I, I am interested in, in landscapes that hold heavy histories hard yeah, and long, yeah. and you can hear them uh, in certain ways. Because you go to, there's a, a church I love in the Cotswolds, so it has a statue of St. Michael above the door. Hmm. And when you see a statue of St. Michael, that is an indication that the church was built on a pagan holy spot. Mm. And people believe, let's plant our sword on the corpse of the people who were here before us, as far as their culture goes. What a gesture. I mean, a, a frightening one, really, a chilling yeah. one. So the wish to to eradicate, to erase. Oh, yeah. And you go in there and you just feel like you're you're sitting on the corpse of something that should be respected. Yeah, history lies close to the surface and deep in Britain. That's true. You, you step out of my doorway, follow a footpath, you're, you're on a Roman road within 300 yards, you follow the Roman road, you're on a Neolithic trackway within two miles, um, and you can follow that all the way to the sea. 
And if you know what you're looking for, it's all around you. I mean, Romans, uh, the engineers did their plotting from peak to peak, and they just drew a line, and it's a straight line. And today, 2,000 years later, if you see that straight road, yep. and you see the two peaks, you can imagine the Roman engineer laying that thing out when they wanted to uh, colonize that part of their empire. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert McFarlane. His book is Ghost Waves, Two Journeys in Unquiet Places. So we've talked, Robert, about hollowways. Mm. What about Ness? Ness is a little bit different, I think, but it's uh, it's related. I wrote Ness uh, almost as like a sort of prose poem because I wanted to get under the skin of, of one of the most haunting places I know. Um, it's a frightening haunting as well because this is a nuclear weapons test site which lies on a shingle spit about 10 miles long that lies off the east coast of England. And everything about that place is alive in an unsettling way. The spit is a marine shingle spit. It grows and it shrinks and it whips around in storms. Shingle is marine gravel, effectively flints in this case, and they're cast up in, you know, they're billions and billions, and it forms this untrue island. It's almost an island that's just joined at the mainland, but it's about 10 miles long. Uh-huh. And the British military institutions, the RAF, and then the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, effectively co-opted this place because it, it had great security, right? It was, uh, you couldn't get onto it except by boat, really. It was made of shingle, so you could blow it up without causing too much trouble because shingle's a great blast absorber. And it became the place where Britain tested its weapons in the First World War, tested mm. artillery, planes, um, Second World War. And then in the 50s and 60s, it became where we test, stress tested and temperature tested our, our atomic weapons when we had an atomic weapons program. And mm. the Americans got involved there too. And now it's a, a rusting ruined site where gulls build their nests in the control panels of former nuclear weapons test sites. And the natural and the military collide and combine in these eerie ways. And you have a a, a lighthouse that's just <laughs> decrepit and being eaten by the sea slowly. Yeah, it's a climate change front line because it's, uh, this is a soft coast. It's made of shingle and clay uh, and the sea eats it up in the winter storms. There's been a, a lighthouse there since the late 18th century and it is finally about to be decommissioned. They took seven tons of mercury out of the optics because the optics sit on a mercury bed because it's almost frictionless and they can revolve on that. So they had to get mercury out because you don't want seven tons of mercury in the North Sea. And now so, finally, this extraordinary structure is is collapsing. You got this mix, this powerful, confusing, violent, depressing uh, yep. mix, ecological, military, uh, erosion. Uh, is it just something that is thought-provoking for you, or is there something physiological about it that makes it, it I've never seen a landscape that has more powerful instant effect on the people I take there I take I take my students there every year I take visitors there I took a Palestinian friend there I took an American friend they're they're, they're puzzled uh, then they are chilled then uh, I never know how people will react some of some of them cry some are silent some uh, go back and back for years afterwards so much comes together in that landscape uh, nature resurging itself to create green chapels of bracken and moss and algae where the worst weapons that we've made were tested. This is a hopeful thing. Is it like shock therapy for your soul to go into there and to be recognizing powerful forces that we don't normally appreciate? Or what is yeah. it that strikes your tour members? Well, I think for me, it's, uh, and, and for many of them, it, it is an oddly hopeful place that... um 
uh, perhaps delusorily that a phase has passed uh, of Britain, you know, fighting to develop its own nuclear weapons. Um, the mm. nuclear threat has not passed at all, but uh, and also nature taking back what man has made. That is, it's very strong there. But if if I just stumble into that without your guiding and you able to give me context, mm. I would miss the message, wouldn't I? I don't think you would. It, oh. It's a bit like a um, a military industrial Stonehenge. You know, you go to Stonehenge yeah. and you know something some powerful worship happened yeah. there. These structures were made to worship a god or gods or a, a cosmic worldview that we could never know. That happened here too, but it was the nuclear god. Robert, I went into a political ghost way on a mountaintop in Bulgaria, and it was mm -hmm. a concrete, it looked like a, a UFO that landed on this mountaintop. It was a big convention center for the Communist Party. <laughs> and now it's closed down, but I could sneak through a hole in how the doorway was boarded up. And then I walked over all this fallen, what looked like asbestos panels and rusted beams. And I climbed up a mossy, slimy stairway and I came into this and it was like a, a basketball hall or something like that, a, a hockey court surrounded by decrepit propaganda and sun was streaming through holes in the dome. And the place was just, it was like a big communist architectural sugar cube that was melting. And I just thought, whoa, this is like, kind of like what you're describing, but from our age, it was just 50 years old. Yep. That was sitting on a hilltop. It was not designed for people. We're supposed to stay away. And right. I trespassed in and I didn't need anybody to give me context. I just felt like there was a huge clash of cultures and this one lost. Brilliantly evoked. I mean, and that, that's a kind of contemporary archaeology. You know, we, we, yeah. archaeology doesn't need to turn its view upon prehistory to be resonant. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert McFarlane, and his book is Ghostways, where he explores two unquiet places. Robert, you talked about acoustics. What is it about the sounds? Because a lot of times we have our camera, and we love it when the light is warm and we grab a great photograph, but we don't really pay a lot of attention to the sounds that surround us. Yeah, Ness particularly is one of the most astonishing soundscapes I've ever been in. And when I remember it, I remember it, I think, in sound first uh, and sight second. The cry of curlews uh, over the tidal mudflats, um, the core of blackback gulls as they nest back on the blast chambers that contain the blasts of detonate, nuclear detonators, and the wind that sings with the note of D on the railings of the bomb ballistic building from which observers watched ordnance crash into the shingle so they could better measure death. Mm, that's so important. It's so important to remember that extra dimension, the acoustics, the sound. Close your eyes and listen. Be there. I did a guided tour once of St. Peter's Basilica, and I had people, I assumed they'd be listening to my earbuds. Mm -hmm. So they would be enjoying the greatest church in Christendom with me filling their audio world. It was just my voice. And then it occurred to me, this is not right. I listened to my own tour. There's something wrong here. And I realized I have to build into this tour a time to take the earbuds out mm. and just be aware of the sound of this vast space mm. that for centuries people had come to worship and, and, and pilgrims had been. And, and it makes all the difference to remember that you've got that extra dimension. Again, this is Travel with Rick Steves. Robert McFarlane's book is Ghostways. Robert, I'd like to just wrap things up by, by broadening this out a little bit. As you put this poetic book together, and it is like reading a poem. What's the takeaway you want for travelers? What lessons can we learn from the two ghost ways that you featured? And how would that apply to landscapes beyond Ness and Holloway? 
Yeah, all landscapes are unquiet. I think that's the first thing I'd say. They all have a thinness to them. Some are thinner than others, that's true. But um, never stop at the surface. Um, no landscape is without history, and some of those histories will be dark. Don't settle for the pastoral. Talk, listen, delve, inquire, be curious. And a landscape will always open more to you than it seems to possess at first glance. Don't settle for the pastoral. <laughs> listen, be open, even if it takes you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Robert McFarland, thank you so much. And you've got me uh, exposed to a whole new way of looking at travels. Travels is all about landscapes, but sometimes we're blind to the landscapes. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You'll find links to Robert McFarland's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's hear about where you want to go next on Travel with Rick Steves. For many of us, having to cancel our travel plans this year because of the risks posed by the pandemic has made us appreciate the privilege of being able to travel all the more. A good portion of the fun of travel comes from anticipation. You know, that excitement we feel between the time we make our reservations and when we actually arrive. Let's see if we can't help each other to weather the closures a bit by sharing what our plans have been and where we hope to travel next as soon as it's safe to do so. We're at 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Lynn in Tamarack, Florida, is on the line to get us started. Hey, Lynn. Uh, Hello, Rick. It's nice to speak to you. I understand you were in South Korea just before the coronavirus hit. What was that like? Well, that meant right before the coronavirus hit in America. So long ago, a time far, far away, which was a couple months ago in February, Mm I'm a, uh, an airline employee, and I said to my husband, let's go to Korea. I think we'll be able to get on the airplane. And at that time, it was Daegu in South Korea that was having the problem. And Seoul, from all my research, really had nothing. And the bookings were great. And I said, if we get a business class seat, we'll go there. So we flew to Dallas, and sure enough, they handed us a business class seat and we landed in South Korea. So we get to our hotel, and there was a sign that said um, the infrared was taking our temperature. You, you, you didn't even know it was happening. It just was a sign. <laughs> and then uh, it, was, it, was, it was really like being in, a, in another world. And then we took the escalator up to uh, our check-in in this huge, huge skyscraper. That's where the hotel was. And they took our temperature on our forehead and on our wrist with those non-contact thermometers, which I personally had never seen before. But they had it, and it was shocking. And she's wearing a face mask, and we're just smiling at her, whatever. And the next day, we do our touring, and everybody is wearing a face mask. And we were told in America that it wasn't necessary. So... I think back on this and think how these South Koreans looked at us probably with horror, but you couldn't tell because they had a face mask on. Yeah. And we're just marching around and uh, oh my doing what goodness. we could. They've had a good Go uh, record with um, keeping this virus in control, haven't they? Were, were you impressed by how they could do it and, and wondering why can't we? My husband has been joking we should we should be there right now instead of the COVID capital of the world in Florida. South Florida. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but what they've got? What do they have? They've got a society that is more um, willing to 
give up a little bit of their individual freedoms for the greater good, I think. You nailed it right there. But yep. we didn't, I, I mean, we realized it when we were there because there were um, videos um, on screens telling you how to take care of yourself. Yep. There was uh, the Purell everywhere yep. you went. In fact, we were at a street market, and the woman who didn't speak English uh, was trying to let us know that she would not take our money, nor would she give us the food until we used her hand sanitizer. There you go. Uh, it, it was just amazing what was going on there. And I had no idea how to really look at it until it hit bad in the United States. Yeah, so they were just, you were probably just seen as like clueless people from far away from a land that just didn't, under, that was less developed in its sensibilities about this. And the irony is, a lot of us are so adamant about not giving up our rights. And the Koreans who are focusing on what's good for their neighbor what's good for their community, what's safe for other people, they are actually, by giving up their rights, enjoying more rights right now than we are when we just are stubbornly refusing to, to understand that we've all got to be together on this. You said it so well, because certainly looking back on it, that's what I saw. And it's a shame that um, we're just not doing the same here. And I, I kept on saying to my uh, husband, this will never happen in America, meaning people um, yeah. uh, would not be taking our temperatures, but yeah. they are now. And uh, they, Purell yeah. everywhere and um, wearing face masks. I just, I just couldn't see that because we're so independent-minded. You just can't tell Americans what to do. Would you go back to Korea oh, if you could? What a country. What a country. I would go back in a nanosecond, and I'm dying to go back because I wanted to go to the DMZ. And at that point, even though there was no um, pathogens, everything was closed. But mm-hmm. I didn't know that before we went, that they mm-hmm. were not letting crowds get together. Mm-hmm. So there were no tours. Well, thank you for your inspiration. It's just so cool. You've been in Korea, and you've seen a society that has uh, figured this out. And um, I hope that we can all um, get a handle on this virus so we can travel on. Uh, Take care, Lynn. Thank um, you. Thank mm-hmm. you. You too. Okay, bye Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are checking in with our well-traveled listeners. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And I would love to check in with Pat, who's on the line from Genoa City in Wisconsin. Hi, Pat. Hey, Rick. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you for calling. Uh, what have you been thinking about uh, these days with your travels, your memories, your your hopes of getting out there, and how you're dealing with this uh, lockdown time? I've been traveling with my RV. Okay. And it has been a little different, but not that much different. You know, when you're in your RV, you're in your own, you're pulling your own uh, hotel room with you. Yeah. And... Uh, you don't really have to worry about that much interaction with other folks. Gas stations, you stop, you pop your credit card in, you pump up your gas, and you're on mm-hmm. your way with little or no interaction with anybody. Right. The only real restriction we've seen is that the swimming pools at some RV parks have been closed this summer. Yeah. Um, I've gotten, I've noticed I'm, I'm anxious if I'm indoors with people, and I'm much more comfortable outdoors. Do you find that people um, respect each other's social distance, but you can still have a chance to connect with people and, and share a drink or something from a distance? Uh, you can. Uh, most people really are staying in their own mm-hmm. uh, little 
patio. Right. You, know, you set up a patio outside your RV. I see. Uh, most of the interaction, quite frankly, we've had are with the RV park owners. I'm also part of a group called Harvest Hosts, where for a fee, they will let you stay at different wineries, breweries, farms, other roadside attractions around the country. And we did that. We just got back about three weeks ago from a two-week trip out to the Four Corners. Mm. And we stayed at a, few, a winery, a brewery, and a distillery, and a uh, wildlife park mm-hmm. um, on the way out there. Well, Pat, I hope that you have uh, safe travels, and uh, I, I'm, it's, uh, it's nice that, that we do have an opportunity to get out and enjoy the great outdoors and uh, still be safe and be mindful that we don't want to contribute to this frustration that we're having as a society of not being able to get a handle on this darn virus. Yes, there's an outlet, and uh, we just have to be smart. Good. Thanks, Pat. Take care. All right. Have Bye a good now. day. <laughs> you too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Gloria in Daytona Beach Shores in Florida has emailed us, and Gloria writes, We were scheduled to be in Scotland in August and are really disappointed we couldn't go. We were planning a tour, plus meeting up with our daughter, husband, and grandson who stationed in Britain with the Navy. Our seven daughters and grandsons have been subjected to our travel albums and tales of our travels over the years, and now they want to go traveling themselves. Scotland is our first destination, and we're going to take the girls in tow. We can think of no better place to escape the crowds and confinement of these last few months than the wide-open spaces and fresh air of this amazing land of history and hope. You know, I think that's a very good observation, Gloria. Open spaces, fresh air, that just screams the highlands of Scotland. Rent a car, get out there, stay in B&Bs. I think uh, social distancing is sort of that's the way it is in normal times in Scotland. Breathe the fresh air and take the hikes and enjoy the rustic towns. Uh, I think Scotland's a great idea. Remember, if you're going to do the big cities, the two big important cities are Edinburgh and Glasgow. Edinburgh is the famous, charming, historic place. Glasgow is the rough and tumble industrial age capital. They're connected by trains every half an hour. The train is maybe 45 minutes. So you should do both of them, regardless of where you're staying. You can side trip back and forth. But I'm a big fan of driving in Scotland. I absolutely love it. And, you know, there's touristy things to do, but there's a lot more to the Highlands than the Loch Ness Monster. I can promise you that. If you are going to the famous and sort of super popular Isle of Skye. Remember, the Isle of Skye has way more tourist interest than it has infrastructure for tourism. So you may find that it's easier to stay on the mainland and drive to the Isle of Skye. If you're going to do that, get an early start and plan on spending a long day exploring Skye. It's really worth the trouble. Thanks for your email, Gloria, and good luck getting some fresh air and some room to stretch out and enjoy the wide open spaces in Scotland. Barrett's calling in from Dallas in Texas. Hey, Barrett. Hey, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great. Tell us about uh, what's going on in Dallas. Sure. So, um, you know, our our local museum, the Dallas Museum of Art, recently reopened. Um, And one of the things I guess, you know, I would love to hear your opinion on as well, um, having been to, you know, Seattle's great museums. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of great art here in the United States, um, particularly for those of us that enjoy European art. So I think about what Fort Worth has here in our, you know, neck of the woods with um, it's the only Michelangelo uh, oil painting, you know, to my knowledge in the Western Hemisphere. And in fact, it is his earliest painting. I think, you know, Vasari mentioned that he painted it at the age of, I think it was 13. 
Um, So, you know, in every city that I can think about, uh, Boston, New York, but even uh, other cities such as Cleveland and, and, you know, has, has really great European art. So I would, I would highly encourage, you know, those like myself that uh, enjoy traveling to Europe, but also want to see what, uh, what we have here in the United States to, to check out some of your local museums, because I think there's a lot to, uh, to see and to learn. And Barrett, I think that's a very good point. And uh, a lot of times we're so fixated on seeing art in C2 overseas that we forget that we've got great art in museums here. I'm very, very concerned and saddened by the thought that uh, a lot of the museums, especially the small museums that closed down during this pandemic, will never reopen. I've got a friend that runs a museum in Arkansas, and uh, he's concerned. He thinks a third of all the museums that closed down will not be able to reopen. So uh, museums need our support, and it may not be as convenient just to pop in. You might need to have a reservation, or you might need to social distance, but there's a lot of reasons to check out and patronize our local museums, and let's just be sure that uh, we need to... uh, consume as if we, how we consume will shape our, our world and our communities. And, and we want to keep those museums vital. And I just, in that spirit, went to the little museum of Northwest Art in my hometown. And I just thought, what a delightful opportunity to be aware of a great museum in my own town and see some beautiful artists. It's uh, beautifully uh, presented. And it sounds like in Dallas, you've got great museums to see. You know, we, we have a great, uh, we're spoiled from, from having a lot of uh, particularly, you know, impressionist uh, masterpieces from, you know, the typical names like Van Gogh and Monet and Manet. But uh, we also have a great museum here that's on the uh, Southern Methodist University campus that's exclusively dedicated to Spanish art. So you can see mm. uh, Velazquez, wow. um, yeah. you know, the names that you would expect. And so it's, um, so that's a wonderful thing. And, and like I said, I, I don't think that's exclusive to Dallas, having seen no. most of this country. You know, we're, we're very fortunate. Um, and, I, and I totally echo your point about uh, making sure we patronize. If we have the ability to, uh, right. you know, to, to give generously, it's, it's important to yeah. do that. And, um, you know, certain cities like ours are, are fortunate that we have, uh, you know, a, a donor base, but other museums, they don't have quite that donor base. So it's, it's important mm-hmm. that we make sure that we patronize them. And, and I think... For me, what it does beyond just that, you know, the local patrimony is the fact that, um, you know, it really inspires me, you know, on, on a monthly or even, you know, quarterly basis when I'm able to pop my head in and remember yeah. the, the beautiful memories from Europe. But also just, you know, art itself is a wonderful thing that, we, uh, that we've got a treasure. So important. And if we get lazy and we just sit on our couch and watch great TV... We will have a world of great TV, and other things will wither away. So, you know, we've got to get out there, and especially for students and so on, make sure that we uh, patronize in a way that we want to shape our future. Barrett, thanks so much. That was a a very good uh, comment, and and it's something that is so timely right now that the world can come to us thanks to our local museums. Thanks very much, Ray. Okay, take care. A year without being able to travel is certainly frustrating for all of us. But we can still plan where we want to go next as soon as it's safe to travel. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting inspired by hearing about your travel plans. We're at 877-333-RICK. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And let's talk to John in Trenton, New Jersey. John, thanks for the call. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How has this pandemic impacted your travels, your travel plans, your travel dreams? Well, this summer, we're supposed to go as a family to Greece, the Greek islands, and uh, everything was booked. We had the hotels, the airfare, and then suddenly our airline canceled the trip. Mm. 
we couldn't go. And even the, some of the hotels we booked were, were closed for the season. So unfortunately, this year, we're home in New Jersey as opposed to the Greek islands. Hmm. But we did get credit vouchers for most of the uh, hotels. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say things clear up and you can go. What are you going to do? What are you excited about in Greece? The, of course, the islands, the beaches, and the photogenic scenery. Nice. And the islands we're planning to go to included uh, uh, Santorini, of course, uh, Mykonos, and Rhodes. Ah, well, that sounds like three of my favorite islands. Have you been to any of them before? I've been to all three before, actually. I've been to Rhodes once, Santorini twice, and Mykonos three times. Well, explain. Those are the three touristy islands, the three most famous islands. I love them, but how would you compare them, and how would you help people choose between them? Well, I guess it all comes down to is what a person's looking for. Uh, Santorini is probably the most photogenic, most nice scenery, but the beaches are not ideal. True. So if you're looking for photos... Well, they got some black there. sand. The black sand beaches on the south coast are kind of nice, though. They're hot. <laughs> They're very hot. Uh, of course, ashes. Yeah. But it's not the crystal blue Caribbean-like water True. that we're used to in the Kikladas, which mm. is uh, in Mykonos, Naxos, and things of that nature. Right. Oh, they've got beautiful beaches there. And then on the far side of Rhodes, when you were in Rhodes, did you go to the beach up in the far opposite side of the town of Rhodes? I was mostly in Lindos. Lindos, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Beautiful. Uh, probably the best beach in Rhodes is Lindos. Gorgeous. Beach. Lindos. Wow. You know, I'll never forget being in uh, Mykonos, and I, I literally mm. jumped ship. I was on a cruise ship, and we went to Santorini and went to a couple of other islands, and we didn't want to go all the way back to Athens and be, or wherever the cruise was going to end. So we just got off the ship there in Mykonos, and Mykonos was great with all of the crowds in the middle of the day. But at the end of the day, you know, the sun was low in the sky and the, it was comfortable and there was warm, sort of rich colors because of the low sun. And all of the crowds were gone. It was like the whole community, the whole island just gave a nice sigh. They had made their money for the day and now there was a few real travelers there, but all the cruisers were gone. And you could just nurse your drink there on the beach and you thought, this is the Mykonos that people fell in love with. And this is the Mykonos that nobody on a cruise ship experiences. In fact, I can remember some several places where I just... A, a beer tastes really nice when you're watching the cruise ship that congested your dream destination sail away with all those people on it, and the sun's going down, and you're ready for a nice evening. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. Hey, John, I hope you get your... Uh, I go, hope you get a chance to use those vouchers for those hotels you paid for. I sure hope so. And then, uh, how's your Greek? Do you got a favorite uh, Greek phrase that you like to say? Uh, well... Um, my parents are of Greek descent, so naturally oh. I learned the Greek language as well. Okay. How do you say next year? Because maybe you can go next year. Tukrono. Tukrono? Tukrono, yeah. Tukrono. And then Krono. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's what I wish for you, okay? All right. Thank you. Ciao. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Kazmora Hall. Amara Kitnikone uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. 
You can find out more about our guests and read Rick's travel blog on our website at ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.